Yesterday, I had the privilege of taking part in a graveside funeral uh, for Wynne Wright. And uh, Mrs. Wright, affectionately known uh, to many years ago uh, and through the years as Grandma Wright, was um, a senior when I came to this church. And there were a handful of seniors when I came here 27 uh, years ago as a volunteer, 26 as pastor, and, um, and she was 100. And uh, her son, Pete, who was the pastor previous to me, uh, at the church, uh, and I uh, oversaw her, or presided over, however you say it, over her graveside yesterday. And so it was a, quite a moment yesterday, like even for Amy, as he drove back for 14 years, we've driven to and from uh, Arthur to see her and uh, Ken Wright, who passed away, her husband, back in 2007. And I was driving home with yesterday with Amy saying, I don't know if we'll ever drive to Arthur again. Now, there's nothing wrong with Arthur. It's a nice little town. Just what purpose would we have to ever go there again? And so as we were coming home, I was just thinking of a number of things we did over the years as we took the kids and went back and forth there. Uh, secondly, and then I'll pray and preach, but uh, you may notice that today you're on new chairs. Paul may have said that I went and got my phone because I realized I did not have it here. There wasn't a clock in here. There's now one in here. And I, that meant I would have no clue what time it was uh, as I was preaching, which meant I'd go on forever. Um, but if he didn't say that, we told you last week you'll see new things every week as you come in for the next number of weeks. And so we're hoping next week we're actually turned the other way, facing the stage. Uh, but uh, each week as we go along, things are being completed and done, and you'll see new things come in. But these are great chairs. Last week, if you were here, you sat in the burgundy chairs. And this week, you sit in these wonderful, much more plush chairs. And so we're really thankful for them. Would you pray with me? You are God and you're good. We're thankful for ways that you continue to provide. Um, we heard today about the $630,000 and the way you provided uh, that pledge this week. We're so thankful for that, God. We are still mindful in praying that you would provide another million dollars between now and Christmas, God, um, to take any mortgage we have down to below $2 million. So, God, would you provide that million dollars, um, not necessarily in a gift, but in all of us contributing together. Would you do that, God? And then we're thankful uh, for grace in our lives. We're thankful for Mrs. Wright and just the... The number of years you granted her here, not only on earth, but here at our church as part of our church community and family, we ask your blessing on her family now as they are here. Uh, um, just some of them have flown in and traveled in and they're, they're grieving the loss of mom and grandma and even great grandma. And so would you walk alongside of that family? Would you comfort them and be with them? And now, God, as we turn our attention to your word, we ask that you'd be with us in Christ's name. Amen. As Amy and I were driving home yesterday, of course, we put the radio on at some point and we heard the Premier's announcement that further COVID restrictions have been enforced. And as you hear that, I don't know what kind of runs through your mind, but as I hear that, I, I know for me, uh, as, I, as I'm hearing that, I know there's a variety of opinions surrounding them. There's a variety of opinions surrounding whether to wear or not to wear masks, a variety of opinions around social distancing, a variety of opinions around the overreaching or not overreaching of our government. Have they gone too far? Have they not gone far enough? Lots of opinions that sometimes are expressed in reckless courage and other times are expressed in crippling fear. And how do we as Christians navigate this? And so uh, today I had planned a vision Sunday and the elders asked if I would tackle this subject for a few minutes and then next week we're going to launch into the new vision that God's granted us for the next three years, following that, the book of Colossians. So I want to talk a little bit about fear, 
a little bit about unity and a little about navigating opinions this morning. If you have your Bibles, we'll start in John 14. John 14, as Jesus is telling his disciples that, they, that he is leaving and letting them know that he will no longer be with them, and they're fearful. They're like, we don't know where you're going. We don't know how we're going to get there. When Jesus had told them that he's preparing room for them in a place. And he lets them know that as he goes, the Spirit of God is going to come, and God's Spirit is going to indwell them. And in verse 26, he says this, But the Advocate, that's the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace be with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Jesus here reminds his disciples that the Spirit is coming, and he's going to offer a few things. One of them he's going to teach. If you're a believer today, God's Spirit is in you. That is great news. God's Spirit is in us. He indwells us. And he's going to teach us. What he's going to teach us? All things. All things Jesus specifically here is talking in relation to the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and us. This is in relation to God and us. This doesn't mean that my daughter, who's, you know, in high school now, can walk into a biology exam and say, Spirit of God, you're going to teach me all things I have not studied. Grant me knowledge now. Now, I'm not saying he couldn't do that. I'm saying that's not the context here. The context here is regarding our relationship with God, he's going to teach us all things. And notice, he's going to remind you of everything I have said, Jesus says. He's going to, he's going to remind you, he's going to reinforce what's already been taught to you by me. I'd like to say this, the Spirit of God will never lead you where the Word of God won't take you. When someone will come to me and tell me the Spirit of God has led them to something and is contrary to something the Word of God has said, this is what Jesus has written for us, right? It's said to us. The Spirit of God will never lead you to a place where the Word of God won't take you. He just won't do it. And then he says this. Jesus says, I'm going to leave you peace. Peace I leave you. Peace I give to you. I'm not going to give you the way the world does. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Peace in, in the Hebrew, this is Greek, but is, is a total flourishing in every dimension. The idea is, is, that, is that this peace is that you are able to flourish, and it's every dimension of your life. It's a calmness of spirit in the midst of tranquility and difficulty. And Jesus says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. And it's not the peace the world gives. You see, our peace comes with his hope. Comes with his hope. We have a hope. Yesterday, as Pete and I took Winwright's funeral, we talked about the hope we have in Christ. The hope. Right? She was unable to walk well for a number of years, uh, limited, very limited mobility. Um, and in the last couple of years, very hard. She couldn't see very well nor hear very well. So whenever I was there at the nursing home sharing the gospel, you know, well, she knew the Lord, but, but in the sense of, of, of reading scripture, praying with her, encouraging her in the gospel, the whole nursing home knew I was there, right? Because I would just speak loudly so that she could, she could hear me. And she's with the Lord right now, right? She is one day going to have resurrected body. Well, she will hear well. She will see well. She will dance 
That's what happens. We have this hope, an ultimate hope. And so the peace the world has is a fleeting hope because it has an end. There's always an end to the world's peace. It's momentary. It's fleeting. But the peace that Jesus offers is a peace that is eternal. It's lasting. And that's why he can say, so I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want your hearts to be troubled. They don't need to be because I'm granting you a peace of which you don't need to be afraid, a peace of which you don't need to be troubled. The word troubled here means showing distress or anxiety. It means to be worried. It's why the Apostle Paul, when he's in prison, and he's uncertain as to whether or not he will live or die, can say, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says, if I live, I know I live for Christ. I'll serve him and serve him faithfully. If I die, I know it's gain. I'll go and be with him. And he's torn between the two, but he knows that either way, the Lord is with him. So one of the things we need to be very careful about as as we kind of are, are sorting our way through COVID is there's a wisdom that comes. I'm not a medical health professional. I listen to them. I read them up, up until... June, I was the chair of Compass Community Health in my spare time. That's what I did for the last three years because I like sitting on board. So I got direct reports from, uh, you know, the ministry. I got to read them. I got to sort through them. I got to see things that were coming right down the pipeline. Uh, And I'm not a medical health professional. I I can't weigh in on what they're saying. I have to read what they're saying and, and think through what they're saying. And we need to be wise. I'm not today about to take up smoking. I've, I've never even taken a drag from a cigarette in my life. I'm not today about to take up smoking, knowing the ramifications of what it means to smoke long term. If I'm talking to a smoker, I encourage them not to smoke. We need to be wise. But we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear. Christ grants us peace. And so if you find yourself in a fearful situation, whatever that would be, a fearful situation, ask the Spirit of God to grant you peace. And then note that he also calls us to be united. This is Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, Paul saying, as someone who's writing from prison, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Now we think when we hear those words that Paul's about to go into some moral, you know, statements of how you should live morally. Don't lie, don't steal, right? That's not what he does here. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. It obviously includes those things. But then he says this, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bear with each other. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father over all who is, of all, sorry, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul starts by saying, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I am locked in chains. That's my condition. He says, live your life worthy of the call, so be completely humble. Being completely humble is believing as you are hearing the ideas of others that they may actually have a better idea than you. I know people, as they hear others' ideas, they shut them down immediately, as if that person shouldn't be listened to, as if they have nothing to say. That's Utter arrogance. Utter arrogance. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And as we interact with each other, we need to be completely humble. Listening to the opinions of others. Hearing what they have to say. Interacting back and forth with them as we're 
able to. Posture is one of listening, of understanding. And then he says, be gentle. Gentle is being tender and pleasant in your approach. Now, my family will tell you this. I am not always gentle and tender in my approach. It's just not, it's, 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 it's something I've had to work on over the years. And Paul says, as you interact with each other, be gentle, be tender, be pleasant in your approach. When people describe the way you write emails, they're pleasant. When you're dialoguing with other people, you write pleasant emails. You're tender in your approach. When they say that about you as you dialogue with them in conversation, I'm not as much an email writer. I'm more of a let's, let's, let's just have it out. Let's talk through it. Tender. Pleasant. Then he says, be patient. That's a calmness. A calmness that's even under strain. It's someone who's not argumentative. I love a good argument. I love to debate. So when I started to look up this week, being patient means to be not argumentative. I can think of how many times in my life, well, I can't, there's too many, but that I'm argumentative. And I thought, okay, Lord, you need to work this in me. And bear with each other. That means be lenient toward each other. Not quick to point out someone else's faults. And then he says, be united. That's the idea of being harmonious. It's the totality of parts coming together to create a systematic whole. That's unity. And yet, there are times when I've been places and realized that people have various opinions on a variety of subjects. I remember I was in Montreal speaking last year and and there were a group of separatists there, godly people, loved the Lord. At this large event I was speaking at, and we're out for dinner after a group of us, and they're talking about how they believe separation is the best thing for, collect, for Quebec. And other people at the table, there was a few of us at the table, were like, how can you be a Christian and believe that? And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't think you can go that far. What do you mean, how can you be a Christian and believe that? But that's what can occur under situations like that. I flew out to Grand Prairie, Alberta, to speak the Friday and Saturday after the election last year. Grand Prairie, Alberta is the belt buckle capital of Canada. Not exaggerating. I've, in all the places I've been, no one wears more belt buckles and cowboy boots. It's like the Texas of Canada. I remember the first time I spoke in Grand Prairie a number of years ago. I touched down. We're driving to the event. There's snow. It's the end of October, and there's snow in Grand Prairie, which was very discouraging, to be honest. And there's enough snow that about 30 people have gotten on their snowmobiles, and they've ridden their snowmobiles to the event. So all there were in the parking lot were trucks and snowmobiles. And I was like, wow, I am in another world right now. And then I got inside, and I saw belt buckles and cowboy boots. And if you follow the red and blue of the last election, when I was then speaking at this event in Grand Prairie, there was a very divisive spirit that day. Because here I am from the east, central Canada, you consider these, coming to the west, and they just quote-unquote lost. And strong opinions. We went out for a state dinner that night. Strong opinions around the future of Alberta and what that should be. And that can happen with a variety of things. It's not just separation. It's around the environment. It's around ways we think church should function. It's around COVID. So I've preached this a number of times. I'm going to only touch it on it briefly today. You can go back and look at my Romans 14 sermon if you want. Paul and I both actually uh, preached on disputable matters during that series. But Romans 14 says this. 
So accept him whose faith is weak, verse 1. And don't pass judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man or woman whose faith is weak will only eat vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the one who does not. God has accepted him. You, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand. The Lord, will be, the Lord is able to make him stand. Here Paul offers some principles. When you're not seeing eye to eye with other Christians, don't disrespect. That's the idea of looking down. Don't disrespect other believers and don't condemn other believers. Disrespecting, not listening to their opinions, not hearing them out, not believing what they're saying is valid. Disrespecting, he says, is ungodly. But condemning is also ungodly. That's why he says here, don't judge. Now, when he talks about not judging all through this passage, we looked at this this summer, he's not saying that we collectively as a church in a moment of church discipline don't have the right to judge. The only right God grants his people in judgment is that collectively as a church. But as individuals, God's really clear. You can never condemn someone. You cannot stand over someone in judgment. 1 Corinthians 1 says it this way. 1 Corinthians, it's not 1. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. And knowledge will puff up, but love will build up. The person who thinks they know something does not yet know as they ought to know. Our knowledge is incomplete. But the man who loves God is known by God. The woman who knows God is loved by God. What, what Paul's saying here in Corinthians is being known by God is what is the A1 priority. It's way more important than simply what you know. Life is not about what you know. It's about who you're known by. And he says, make sure you're known by God. That's the first priority, not just what you know. Verse 4. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We all know an idol is nothing at all in the world. There's no God but one. For even if there were so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote-unquote, gods and many lords, yet for all of us there is one God, the Father from whom all things came and from whom we live. But there is one Lord, Jesus Christ through whom all things came, through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. Since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we eat, no better if we do. What's going on here? You may know this, but in, in Corinth, the Greek goddess Aphrodite was the main uh, goddess that was, reached, was worshipped. The other god was Poseidon. And as the Greek goddess Aphrodite was worshipped, the goddess of love, the way they would worship her at her temple, this is, uh, before Paul got there, there was about a thousand, this is a few hundred years before, uh, prostitutes where you would go and gather to worship at her temple. In this day and age, it was probably 400 to 500. And you would gather with that, and you would bring your meat, the priest would take your meat, a third of it the priest would keep, a third of it would be sacrificed, and a third of it you would take home with you. That's basically what would happen. But the priest couldn't keep all those thirds of meats. So the priest would sell them to the market. The market would sell them to people. And now you're at the market and you don't know if the meat you're about to buy, if other portions of that meat have been sacrificed to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. And as you gather at the market and you're now a Christian having come out of that worship and all that's related to it, all of that immorality, all of that, all, 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 all of that falseness, 
You now gather, and you're going to have a family dinner, and you're like, I can't serve this if part of it's been sacrificed to Aphrodite, and you don't know. And Paul says, well, you know, the truth is we all know that there is no other God. Like, go ahead and buy the meat if you want, unless your conscience is going to be defiled. Unless it's going to be defiled. John Piper says this, they lack the knowledge that would undergrid and liberate their faith They could not trust God for the holy joy of eating meat or drinking wine because they lacked some crucial knowledge. They knew God, they loved God, they trusted God, but they did not understand something that would have strengthened their faith in these particular ways. In Romans 14, Paul mentions the Sabbath in verse 5 as the one issue there that he's talking about. Then he goes on and he says this in, in, in Romans 14. But he who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord. He mentions the meat in Romans 14 as well. He who abstains does so to the Lord, and he who gives thanks does that to the Lord. I'll just pause there. See, here becomes the crux of the issue amongst believers. The separatists in Quebec are convinced, the believing separatists, that this is what the Lord wants. And those that don't agree with them are convinced this is what the Lord wants. The believing separatists Godly people who I greatly respect in Alberta believe this is what the Lord wants. And there are other godly people there who believe staying as part of Canada is what the Lord wants. And so what do we do? What do we do? Fully convinced on both sides that the Spirit of God have led them to this place. Fully convinced of that. Then we follow the principles God gives us in Scripture around disputable matters. The principles that he offers us. I need to move quickly here to finish up. But, but in verse 13 of chapter 14 of Romans, Paul says this. Let us stop passing judgment on each other. That's one individual to another. Instead, make up your mind that you will never put a stumbling block or obstacle in your brother or sister's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him or her it is unclean. And if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. By eating it, you're destroying your brother or sister for whom Christ has died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking. These are inconsequential. But they're of righteousness, of peace, of joy in the Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Now you need to remember this summer I preached a sermon that talked about what we do in issues where there is sound doctrine, disputable matter, unsound doctrine, and heresy. If you didn't hear that message, go back and listen to it. I'm here specifically talking about disputable matters. I am not talking about issues of unsound doctrine or issues of heresy. But in any area where there is a disputable matter, the word of God is very clear that unity amongst believers trumps any disputable matters. The passage that we read earlier about being completely humble, gentle, patient with each other, forbearing, offering forgiveness one to another, leniency in our understanding one toward each other. Paul says in the areas of disputable matters, all of that reigns. It's very different if it's unsound doctrine. Very different, again, if it's heresy. So here are some principles from 
these passages on disputable matters. And I have done whole series on these. If you want to go back, you can email Jenna this week. She can send you the links, or you can go and find them on the website. James North. Here are some principles. Uh, the, the, first, the first is this. Uh, being preferenced against um, is, is very different than causing someone to stumble. Being preference against is very different than causing someone to stumble. Being preference against means I don't like what they're doing. Causing someone to stumble means I'm causing them to trip up or sin. My, my grandmother years ago, who'd never drank a drop of alcohol in her entire life, was very clear that no one in her family should ever drink alcohol because it may cause her to stumble and fall as a Christian. And I remember thinking to myself when I was in Bible college, Grandma, that is not true. Anyone drinking alcohol around you is not going to cause you to become an alcoholic. That is not even possible. You're never going to drink alcohol because of it. They're going to preference against you, but they're not going to actually cause you to stumble. Now, drinking alcohol in front of an alcoholic or, or a recovering alcoholic, someone who maybe hasn't drank in three years, could very well do that and cause them to stumble. And so that's an area then that you need to be thinking through, okay, I can't be doing this in front of them, right? Another one here. The, the strong brother isn't simply a brother or sister who isn't issue-oriented, because that's often, often we characterize the weak as the issue-oriented brother or sister. The strong is the one who says they're free. But the strong brother isn't simply someone who exercises their freedom. Remember what Paul says at the end of Corinthians in that passage? I didn't get to it today. But he says, I am willing to never eat meat again if it causes my brother or sister to stumble. That's a fascinating statement. Paul says, I who love meat am willing to become a vegetarian if it means that a brother or sister of mine will never stumble. So the strong brother actually is someone who knows that they can give up their freedom so the weak brother or sister doesn't stumble but rather flourishes. The strong brother isn't the one who acts in their freedom. The strong brother is the one who's always willing to give up their freedom. That is a strong brother. In fact, if you think that you need to hold on to your freedom, you need to flout your freedom, you're actually not strong. You're actually weak. You're weak, and you act in an unloving, unkind, unchristlike, ununifying way. Two more things. My conscience should be clear when dealing with these spiel matters. That's one of the principles here that I don't defile my own conscience. I said two, there's actually three, two more. Peace is a priority. Peace, righteousness, and joy is a priority. And then Paul says at the end of, of the passage in Romans that this is not what should be consuming the church. These things are not the things that we should be spending our time around because what is critical to the church is righteousness, peace, and joy. So let me sum up a few things. And Jamie, you guys can come up. We are living in an interesting day. Meeting like this is just the oddest thing for me. Right? It just, it is incredibly odd for me. I fear a second wave personally, not simply in, in the sense of, oh, I'm afraid of it. Right? I already talked about fear today, but I'm like, I'm like, like I, I, I'm nervous about what the government may, may do. Right? And there are lots of things I may not agree with in it, personally. That I might say, these are things I don't agree with. These are things I don't, I don't think should be happening. However, as you think through all of that, and all of us have varied opinions on this, 
the Lord is clear. My spirit is in you. I will grant you a peace the world cannot give you because you have a hope the world does not know. Unity amongst believers is a priority number one. Being humble, patient, kind. As we interact with each other, engage with each other, listen to each other. And then when it comes to some of these issues, we go, okay, what are the priorities of Scripture? Well, if I'm really mature in my faith, truly mature, I am always willing to give up my freedom for someone who will stumble if I exercise it. Because true freedom is knowing I am liberated in Jesus. That's what makes me mature. Immature Christians are like, I'm going to do what I want, when I want, how I want, regardless of what others think and how it affects them. Paul's really clear. That's not someone who's really grown in their faith. That's someone who's actually quite immature in their faith. And so together as we navigate these issues, may God grant us a true peace that only comes from him, a unity that will characterize us in a way that the world will see the Lord is with us, and a navigation through disputable matters as we listen, understand, walk alongside each other, and a willingness to say, I will give up whatever freedom I think I have if it will ever be a stumbling block for any brother or sister because love for each other and for the Lord is the number one priority. Will you pray with me? We are thankful, God, for your word that speaks into things, and we confess that we are in a challenging time where all of us together are trying to navigate and look at how we understand ramifications of, 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 of bylaws, of regulations, of at times we're being told guidelines, how to operate them, not only as brothers and sisters in a church community, but in, in businesses, in workplaces, here in the office during the week. Grant us a unity, a peace that only comes from you, and a way to discern through these matters that we will all know that you are our God and we are your children. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.